Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Raj Real Estate Investing Podcast with the, your host, Austin Ye. And Mayu, what's going on, everybody? Austin, I was stumbling over some words, man. Like, I was not feeling that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, things are going well, man. Things are going well. I'm just going to jump straight into it. So, we, we left you on a cliffhanger last week. Mayu and I were talking about looking at a sevenplex with a potential million dollar lift. And that potential million dollar lift has cut to a potential quarter million lift, um, which requires about like maybe a quarter million worth of work. (laughs) Not quarter million worth of work, but like, you know what I mean? Like the lift is not all there, what we anticipated it. Basically what we did, I'll go ahead and just talk through our due diligence process. We looked at the zoning of this kind of small apartment we're taking a look at and found out that it was zoned RD 1.3, which is really single families or existing duplexes. So we had to call the city and found out that it was illegal, non-conforming, seven plaques. And uh, really from there, we needed to figure out the highest and best use, right? Because Mayu and I initially, as we're talking about before, we wanted to add extra units because the basement ceiling height was ridiculous, like nine to 14 feet. We wanted to add two, three bedroom units there. And obviously that's going to increase the uh, uh, income and we're going to get higher valuation on the property. That didn't pan out. The city pretty much said it's zoned RD 1.3 for a reason. We want to keep the we want to keep kind of the aesthetic and the landscape of the area as is. They don't want, I guess, uh, heavy urbanization is not the right word, but but heavy density, if that makes sense, increasing the density of that area. So they pretty much said more than likely, like probably ninety percent chance that they're going to reject us, turn us down, and yeah. our highest and best use really was a seven flex. And Ma, you want you dig into the numbers a bit. Yeah. So, so the numbers, when we were looking to buy it, it would have like cash flowed negative, like maybe like 500 bucks or so on the buy. But eventually, like after we turned around the property as a whole, it would, I think it was going to cash flow like a thousand to thousand five hundred unless we went the route of adding illegal units. Right. So this is also something I think just to clarify for anyone that doesn't know, legal units are, are basically units that are built to code. They're recognized by the city as being a legal dwelling. The non-conforming side just basically means that it's non-conforming with the current zoning that's in place. Right. So when you say legal non-conforming, these units basically existed before the zoning came into play, um, which means that the units were then grandfathered in, right? So they were okay with the current use as a sevenplex, but they said, if you go to add seven or 10 more units, it now becomes an illegal building. You'd have to go to the committee of adjustments to get it approved. And likely the committee of adjustments would reject it, right? And then even if the committee of adjustment rejects it, you can go to the province, LPAD, I believe is what it's called, or there's some other like provincial committee that you can go to, but more likely than not, like it'd be a very like uphill battle. And and myself and and I guess it just comes back to knowing your own goals and like what you're trying to do. Right. So myself and Austin, we're super focused on putting in money, but we get out our money as quick as possible as well. Right. Which allows us to keep growing the portfolio. So we just looked at it as this project. I think we were looking at sinking about 300 grand in capital into it. And it could have taken a while, like two to three years to like fully turn yeah. around. The building. Honestly, if we were able to build the basement units, it would yeah. have been a quick in and out. That's why we were, we, we loved it. We're just like, oh shit, build our units, refine a year and we're out with more yeah, money. But exactly. that wasn't even an option. So um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not ideal. Yeah. So we ended up leaving that, but I mean, it's just constantly analyzing, knowing what's going on in your market, staying ahead of the trends. You got to like make a play on everything. It sucks because you do spend a little bit of money on like inspections, appraisals, like stuff like that. But 
ultimately you got to pay to play to a certain extent, right? I also want to give a shout out to Marco. We chatted with Marco. He's, he's doing a development down at Windsor as well. He basically told us same shit happened to him. By the way, we need to get Marco on this podcast, but this episode isn't about him. But uh, shout out to you, Marco. Thank you for, for jumping on a call and giving us some advice throughout this process. And before we get into today's episode, I'm going to start making this a habit. Make sure to comment, review, subscribe. I don't know. Like we still need to figure out the algorithm part of things, um, but we noticed that our growth has plateaued. So me and my, you want to continue to be motivated to pushing out the best content. We get motivated by seeing you guys leave a positive review on Apple and, and to share the podcast. Anyways, today we are interviewing Aaron and Josh from the Finlay Mortgage Team, who are pretty well-established and popular, uh, I guess, mortgage brokerage. You probably see them on Matt McKeever's team, and they're specialized in working with real estate investors. We personally referred them to our wholesaling business a couple of times as well, because they're really good with private money. (laughs) Yeah. And for today's episode, I think we took it a little bit of a different route. We talked a lot about their backstory, their experience getting started in the mortgage business. They really kicked off their business significantly with a good capital investment in 2020 as well. So we talked about how nerve-wracking that was, different type of products that they offer to other investors, so whether that's like multifamily buildings or even the A and B lenders and private lenders that they have access to. Uh, they're definitely a great resource to add to your team. So anyone that's interested, definitely ch- check out this episode and let us know what you guys think. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guests, Finlay Mortgage Team, Josh and Aaron. How are you guys doing tonight? Good, buddy. How are you? How are you guys? They do well. It's good. It's good. We see quite a bit of you guys. You guys are all over social media. Definitely have a social media presence. You're all over Matt's channel as well, working with a lot of different investors that myself and Austin know. I'm, I'm doing something with you guys right now. So it's always great. I'm just curious, for anyone that doesn't know you guys, why don't you just give them a little bit of background on yourselves? Yeah, a little bit of 30 second elevator pitch. So yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we own the Finlay Mortgage Team. We specifically focus on helping investors scale their rental portfolios. So we offer a handful of different uh, types of capital to allow people to use it as different tools in either scaling, whether that's your first property and you're looking to do a little house hack to you know, building condominium skyscrapers. You know, our team does it all from start to finish. We do very, very large projects and you know, very small and we're equipped to help everybody in between. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, Josh and I have both been in the mortgage industry now for about three years. The other partner and owner who's who's with us as well, uh, Scott Finley, who has been on some of Matt's videos as well, too. You know, he's been in the game for 17 years, so he brings a lot of experience to uh, to the team. And Josh and I, you know, we got a little bit lucky being able to jump into the mortgage game and have someone with that much experience. And, you know, by all means, that's done uh, a ton for us and, and our knowledge. And, and just, you know, the, the wealth, uh, the wealth of knowledge that he brings from all different aspects. And Scott himself made the majority of his uh, time as a mortgage agent in the commercial and development and private space. So, you know, we were able to pick up that, uh, that section right from day one, where, you know, it takes a lot of mortgage agents, three, five years before they really get comfortable in the private space. So, um, you know, that, that definitely gave us a little bit of a head start, but I think the big thing that we we really realized right when we got in and started working, especially what the cash would try and doing some videos with Matt was there was no mortgage agent or mortgage brokerage who was specifically focusing on investors and especially not who's able to like someone who's able to provide creative financing. And you know, we kind of picked up on that pretty quickly. And we just realized that, you know, there was an opportunity for someone to get really good at it and, and bring their knowledge and be able to help people build their own wealth and, and, 
carry that forward and, and build large portfolios. And, you know, we took the opportunity and we ran with it. That's awesome guys. So, so just to specify, you guys uh, mainly focus on creative financing and private financing, right? We, we do it all. So, I mean, our expertise is in finding alternative solutions for our clients, but you know, we, we have access to all the banks, every, every type of capital you can imagine from the most AAA all the way down to mom and pop private money. So you know, we do help all clients in any walks of life, but the majority of our focus is on our investors. Yeah, we, we kind of peg it like you know, we're solutions based. Whatever the solution our client needs, if we go out and find that, if it's an A solution, we work with A lenders. If it's a, you know an alternative solution in the subprime space, we work with credit unions, we work with the B lenders. And then, you know, if it requires super creative financing, we have our, our private investing connections as well too. So it really comes down to basically how our system is. You know, we reach out to the client or the client reaches out to us, uh, that initial contact point. We just figure out what their goal is. You know, what are you trying to do? And then what tools do we have to, to work with? You know, what's your income? What's your credit? Do you have a portfolio of rental properties that we can utilize that rental income from? And then we just start to build a scenario. And then, you know, how do we get from point A to point B? And then whatever path we have to go down to get to the exit and get to the end goal, you know, that's that's where we come in and, and we just, we guide them to that solution. So, so I was just going to say, I'm curious because you guys have, have been in this now for about three years, but I don't think anyone knows Josh and Aaron before you guys were Finley Mortgage Team. So what's your background and like, you know, how did you guys decide to become mortgage agents and kind of, or brokers and jump into the space? Sure. So uh, that's, that's a funny question. So I, uh, I wanted to be a police officer my whole life, born and raised. I, I, I wanted to do it since I was three years old and on. I went to university uh, in Toronto and that's where I met Aaron. So we went, we actually lived together as university roommates and then obviously graduated university and so did Aaron and I decided to pursue policing. Uh, it, they told me to go get some life experience. So I just ended up getting like a sales job. And it was a salary sales job. I thought I'd made it at the time. This was great. I was going to work my way up in 30 years and maybe be a manager. It was going to be awesome. What were you uh, selling? <laughs> well, I decided that that just wasn't, wasn't for me. Okay. I like finding solutions. I like not being capped in my income. And I like, you know, being able to grow something and get up every day and work towards a goal. And that definitely wasn't it. So I was obviously like most young people in their early twenties, I was just struggling with the idea of after school, what to do next and how to kind of figure out what life was going to give me. So my uncle who'd been doing it forever, you know, kept saying, come work with me, come work with me. And one day enough was enough. And I said, you know, what? I'm doing it. Went and wrote my test and then quit my job and jumped right into it full time. No guarantee on any being paid or knowing anything. I just had faith in my ability and bet on myself and decided I was going to do it. And I wow. jumped right in. And then Aaron's kind of the same way. He just kind of jumped right into, you know, we thought we just, you know, if you're going to bet on somebody, bet on yourself. And, you know, we know that we have the ability and knowledge and work ethic to be able to get it done. And so our relationship obviously grew from being, you know, friends, obviously best friends to then opening up a, a brokerage together best and partners. Yep. Yeah. And now here we are. Yeah. It's uh, I, like Josh said, he took policing. I took kinesiology. Uh, I played a lot of sports growing up and I thought, you know, my path was going to be somewhat sport related, whether that was, you know, some sort of chiropractor or uh, rehab or just a, a, you know, a strength trainer and coaching professional athletes. I, I did my co-ops and stuff and, you know, they, they were fun, but, I just, it was more of a personal interest and, and more of a personal hobby that I enjoyed doing. Not something that I really saw becoming in, in, you know, into a career. And then I, I shadowed, you know, Josh said, Hey, like my uncle does this, you know, he's a mortgage broker. You should go talk to him. And I shadowed him for a little bit. 
saw what he did and, and what he was able to create, you know, essentially by himself. He, he's had a quite an interesting career, but he had his own brokerage before this. And, you know, he, he did quite well on his own. And, you know, it caught my eye. My uncle is a, a realtor out in British Columbia. So I've always had a bit of an interest in, in real estate and wasn't quite sure how to get into it. There was a time where I thought maybe a realtor was the way to go, but you know, mortgage brokering, everyone needs financing, right? You can sell your house privately. You don't really need a realtor, but you know, if you want to get super crazy and be able to create a large portfolio and, and, and make a career out of that, you, you need someone who's able to get you financing when, you know, just going to the bank doesn't work anymore. So that's, that's kind of how I got into it. I, uh, there was a time where I just had enough working at, uh, at my job. I went into my boss on a Thursday, told him I was done. And he said, when I said tomorrow. And then that was oh, you know, on a Friday. The balls on this guy. And that what was the it. So, <laughs> uh, it was scary, man. I mean, yeah. I, I didn't know what was going to happen, but you know, we, we blossomed. I think the big thing that's interesting to us is, is having gone through 2020 and the pandemic and everything is just the weird dynamic that goes on in society where, you know, it, it everyone has their own ability to be successful mm. and everyone faced the challenges in, in 2020 and, and is still chasing them in 2021. And there's a lot of people who make excuses. There's a lot of people who were, you know, truly hit hard and just have been struggling to recover. And then there's people who were able to take an opportunity and, and, and do something. And, you know, I think we, we took that opportunity and we stepped on the gas pedal with our marketing and our advertising and, and we just went with it and it, and it turned out really well. And, and it's now this is the Finley mortgage team. So yeah, you, that's awesome. That's, I think we can all relate where we all had some sort of goal in mind. Mario was like, oh, I'm going to be a CPA. No, he turned out to be an investor. <laughs> Myself, I was like, I want to be, I, I want to go into the finance world. Worked in there. It's like, no, fuck that. Like, I want to go into real estate. Like we want, we want to work in a place where one thing that we're passionate in, uh, we're creating solutions. So on the investing side, you create solutions in terms of rental properties, adding uh, a better living rental suites out there in the market. On your side, you're creating financing solutions, right? For people mm -hmm. who want to buy properties, but they might not be able to, or people who want to grow their portfolio, but I'm just not sure how, right? So it's just interesting how we all think we have a plan, then we find our way into something else. I think we're seeing a lot of, like, as you were mentioning in COVID, I think we see, we're seeing a lot of people who are working their full-time jobs and now they have time to really, really reflect do I like what I'm doing? And a lot of people are getting into side hustles. It's pretty cool to see that you guys just kind of took the leap of faith and it's all worked out for you guys. But I'm sure there were a lot of hurdles along the way. So let's touch into that. You guys said like, screw the full-time job. We're going to go in this balls to the wall and, and figure stuff out. So how was the first couple of months for you guys? And, and what were some of the hardships you faced? Sure. I mean, you know, the, no, it's never an opportune time to make a difficult decision. When you're faced with a difficult decision, most people don't make it and never see the results of that decision unfold. And I remember Aaron and I, it was it was a decently scary time. Like the world was stopping. Everything kind of ground to a halt. Money had frozen. Private money was was done. Like no nobody knew what was going to happen. The world, like the stock market tanked. I remember sitting there one day and we, we had a conversation. We said, you know, we, there's going to be two types of people who come out of this. It's going to be people who, you know, who really do something with the time that they have available, or there's going to be people who absolutely get decimated. And I'm, I'm definitely not being the second version of it. So we decided we were going to create a plan and, you know, we, we made a decently difficult decision and spent a decent amount of money on, on building our brand and, and doing that. And we made an investment in ourselves and, that was the biggest hurdle. And then obviously you mix all those ingredients with a hundred hour work weeks every single week for the net, 
for forever. And, you know, hard work pays off every single time. So we, financial, you know, financial hurdles, you know, learning as you go kind of thing, creating networks, like trying to figure out how are you going to be personable with people without being in person with people? Like how, how do you create a connection with somebody without being able to stand in front of them and, and for them to know you? So how do you do that? Like, do you, we obviously, mm -hmm. we convey it through our videos or we try to be personable and tell people they can reach out to us and have actual conversations and give people a time of day. So there's a pivot in the way that we kind of changed our business to be able to connect with people. And at the end of the day, if you do good business with good people, it, it kind of compounds over time. And that's kind of where we're at is just, you know, the people that we've been able to connect with, um, they've become more than just clients, you know, we're, we're, we're friends with them. You know, mm -hmm. we, we do a lot of business with them. We're helping them grow their wealth and they're helping us grow our business. So it's, uh, you know, those, all those pain points that you could point out that were difficult to get to where we are. And obviously there's going to be more along the way, but you know, just push through it, man. That's it. Just make, make tough decisions, push through it, take the risk because nine times out of 10, it was worth it. Yeah. And yeah. I think Grant Cardone talks about this too, right? I mean, there's going to be times where there's going to be some sort of hardship and, you know, a pandemic is definitely proven to be one of the, the tougher times I've had to live through. I mean, I don't know what you guys, but you know, what he says is there's, you know, it's the most opportune moment because everybody takes that time or the majority of people take that time and they sit back a little bit and they say, okay, everyone's affected. You know, I can pull back a little bit and I'm going to stay at the same level as everybody as we move through this. But you know, while everybody's letting off a little bit that it opens up the market for, for people to go out there and take advantage of it. Right. And while what we assume other, you know, some other mortgage brokers might've been sitting back, you know, we, decided to press on and, and come out with this. And, you know, we went hard into, into advertising and it's not like we left our jobs with an insane amount of savings and we were sitting on it. Like I didn't really have any savings at the time. We had to make the decision at the start of COVID essentially last year to start paying for the advertising and stuff with the cash flow tribe. And, you know, it was a, it was a decent chunk of change at that time to be, you know, Hey, we could not be making any income in the next two months. Like who knows if the, registry office is going to be shut down if realtors are going to be able to do open houses uh what, what's going to happen with the lawyers like there was a whole lot of what ifs that could easily cut off revenue supply to us but you know like josh said we weren't going to be the ones who sat there and came out where we where we left off we wanted to be the ones that you know stepped on the gas pedal and, and came out ahead and you know it's, it's yeah. turned out pretty pretty decent yeah, you guys are definitely a, a very big name out there in the investor community. So I think I think that gamble that you guys took on yourself really like paid off, right? So I'm curious, like when you guys first entered the field, like and, and you guys didn't come from the traditional like mortgage agent, uh, what do you call it, like experience background where like they come out of the banks, right? Like mm -hmm. how did you guys go about learning everything? How did you build the connections that you have today? You know, like what, what was that experience like? Because like, I don't imagine it's as easy as I'm just going to send an email to the bank and like get this thing financed, right? <laughs> yeah. Relationship building, yeah. you know, like on the broker channel, we have BDMs. So like our business development managers at all the lenders we work with, just talking, asking questions, you know, like just understanding the products. If you ask for the information, they'll give it to you. They're not going to say no. They want you to bring them business, right? right. So they're going to do everything to help you out. And I think that's, you know, coupled with just bouncing questions off our business partner, Scott, you know, just, just trying to learn the product as, as best as possible. You're going to get turned down by lenders and, and you're going to make mistakes in your underwriting, but asking the questions on what you can push boundaries on and what their hard stops are and, you know, becoming 
closer with your lawyers and your CPAs, figuring out all their tactics that you can start to utilize to help make applications work. Just it's, it's all comes down to relationship building, you know, and, and yeah. I've had a couple mortgage agents or people thinking about becoming a mortgage agent. And they've said like, you know, Hey, what, what mortgage books did you read to get into it? I didn't read any mortgage books. I, <laughs> I got into the mortgage industry. I, I learned from our, our partners and our industry partners. And, and that's what really took us over, over the, the finish line. And I, I would, I would add to that, that you, got, you have to fail. Like it's that mm-hmm. you have to mess up to be able to learn. Like at the end of the day, no one's going to be perfect. You're all, there's going to be mess ups. And I think that that's the first barrier that most people kind of stop at. It's like, if I just kind of sit in my like perfect little, you know, sub, my, my bank box and I just kind of check my boxes. I don't have to ever mess up. I just kind of check the boxes and get the documents for T1s and OAs. I don't have to like go into a scary world. And when you, obviously we were, gifted the ability to be able to have the knowledge that we do from a private lending and a networking side of things. Like I have set, we have 17 years of, of network ability in the private market to be able to deploy solutions very quickly because of yeah. Scott and because of the, the networking that, that he has. But at the end of the day, it's just, it's a lot of failing. It's a lot of messing up. It's a lot of redoing things, a lot of just jumping into it and trying to figure it out and asking questions and, yeah, I think it's definitely, yeah, yeah. That, so so I, I want to touch on something there. And, and specifically, I think the private lender space, right? So there's obviously the A lenders and the B lenders and the private lenders, but we do have a fair amount of our audience that are very new to their real estate investing space. So do you guys just want to quickly, I guess, high level explain that? And then I've, I've got some specific questions on the private side. <laughs> sure, I, I love the private side. So <laughs> I we use it as a tool. So I want to caveat by saying private lending has a negative connotation to it in most spaces some people think of it as predatory lending some people think of it as you know why would anybody ever take some money that's so expensive and Aaron and I are trying to flip the paradigm here is using it as a tool and that's exactly what it is if you use it properly as a tool to be able to do what you need to do it can be very effective so private lending essentially is either taking money from a a federally regulated private lenders, like a mortgage investment corporation or mom and pop, just you, me, or anybody else who has money that they want to put in the market, who's an accredited investor. Now rates are usually between, you know, institutionally, you know, four and a half to about eight and mom and pop money. If you're looking for super like flexibility, you're eight to 10. And then if you're getting the second mortgages, it gets up into the 12s to 15s. It is a interesting market to be in. But it allows you to be able to do a lot of things that banks and financial institutions won't allow you to do, which is why it's so enticing to a lot of your audience and a lot of the investors that we deal with. Yeah. So, so when does someone go, I guess, so helping out an investor here. So there's, I guess there's two questions. When does someone go to the A lender, the B lender, or the private lender? And then, you know, there's a big range on private money, right? So I guess from a lender's perspective, like someone that wants to issue private loans, like what, what are you seeing on, on their main risks? And like, how does someone get that 12% or someone get that 8%? Yeah, I think marketability from the property uh, has a lot to do with it. If it's prime area GTA, you know, that's those are typically going to be your best rates. As you start to expand outwards away from the GTA, you know, you still have your mega, your, your metropolises, your, your Guelphs, your Kitcheners, your Londons they want it to be marketable, right? A, a private lender and, and all lenders look at things from the exact opposite way of an investor. When an investor sees opportunity, lenders see risk. And basically they look at it, how risky is this deal? And the less risky a deal is, the better your rate, the better your terms. 
And, and that's, that's exactly how they look at it. Like I said, GTA, you know, high marketability before COVID it, right now, you know, it's not ideal area, but it will get back to that point. But once you start traveling and getting into, you know, rural areas, cabin in the woods, obviously the resale of that property isn't going to be as high. There's, there's more things that could be wrong with it. It's probably on well and septic. You know, there could be a couple issues with that. They just start and they start to look at little factors like that. And that's where things like collateral and, and being able to tag a, a secondary property with existing equity can help securitize a deal and help lenders get more creative or more aggressive with their loan to value, or maybe decrease the rates a little bit. You know, it, it's all about how can we make this more secure from the lender, it, whether that's decreasing their equity position, you know, or a lower loan to value. All the private guys that we work with are equity based lenders. They, you know, they really care about what their position is in the property. And that's really it. it it's just how risky is a deal to them. And that's how they view, that's how they view the loans that they're putting out. So if you were going to look in a lender, an a lender essentially is somebody who has verifiable income, who has a decent credit score above 650 and somebody who can fit within the boxes and check the boxes that the bank needs to have. So they need verifiable income. They need verifiable credit, and you need to be a, a desirable client purchasing a desirable home. If you fit all those boxes and the bank will happily do your loan they'll, with a smile on their face, here's the document, sign your check, you're good to go. A, a B lender, a, uh, if you're looking at B lender, you're there for two reasons. One, you have bruised credit. You either have one do some sort of bankruptcy or you, one part of your application just isn't right. So wh whether that is your down payment might be non-conventional just in regards to your- uh, could be coming that's where like VTBs come in and like if, if you're with the VTB uh, or like private for a second. Not so much on the B side, but if you're looking to borrow your down payment from an unsecured line of credit, or, okay. you know, you want to put all of your, your uh, down payment from a HELOC, not a whole lot of lenders on the A side will allow for you to put the entire down payment from a HELOC. Most of them might allow you to do, you know, 10 and the 20% or half your down payment, but the majority of them want it to be coming from, you know, your, your funds, your cash savings. The second reason why somebody would be with a B lender is specifically for debt servicing ratios. Right. So if, for example, you wanted to scale your portfolio, B lenders have an aggressive offsetting program, whereas A lenders just add back. For all your listeners who don't know what that means, A lenders take about 50% of your rental income on a property, they'll add it to your gross income and make you qualify for all of your properties plus the one you're looking to purchase or refinance. On the B side, what they'll do is they'll take between 75 to 80% of the rental income and they'll use that income to directly offset all the costs in the property. So they'll offset the mortgage payment, the property tax payment and the heat allowance that drastically affects your total GDS TDS ratios. And the B lenders also allow you to go about 50 to 55% GDS TDS. Whereas your A lenders are looking at around uh, 35, 44, if you have good credit. So, I mean, you, there's definitely always reasons why you'd go to a B side, but like A is very like conventional. B allows a little bit of flexibility then private allows the most flexibility possible. If so, you're so someone like Austin that just quits their job without really thinking too much about it. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, I, they... <laughs> I put a lot of thought. <laughs> do they, do they, do they end lots up... of thought. The last five years of thought have been going into that. <laughs> uh, do they end up on the B lender side or on the private side? Like in the, in most cases, I mean, it really, it really depends. So B lenders are interesting. There's, there's two types of income that they, they kind of go with. There's verifiable income, and then they have like a non-verifiable income type product. Verifiable income is going to be very much like the A lender where they want to see two years tax returns. They're looking at line one fifties, you know, that's going to give you your, your best rates on the B side. 
They also have really good business for self and non-verifiable income. So one of the benefits that we like the, the B side for is their ability to use stated type income products. So for example, if you're a business for self guy and you write your income down to $40,000, but you're cl- like you gross $200,000, you know, on the A side, we can only use your $40,000 as per your line 150 on the B side. You know, we have lenders who will take a look at your 12 months bank statements say, yeah, you know, we can show that you have $200,000 of deposits coming in. You know, we can use 80% of those deposits based on the career that you're in. Now we're qualifying you with $160,000 of income, not your $40,000. So you don't have to go back to your CR, your, your tax, your tax guy, your accountant. You're not claiming more. You're not paying more tax. All you're really doing is just paying that, you know, the small fee on the B side versus paying all those tax and being able to use your, your full gross income, or at least 80%, 85% of that gross income, which is huge. It's, it's fantastic. It's great for realtors. It's great for, for business, for self guys, right. you know, realtors, there's some lenders out there who allow them to use their, uh, their gross T4 and not just what they claim on their tax as well. So, I mean, another big industry where high volume of income, but written down to save on taxes, we can actually, you know, use that full income or, like I said, 85% of that full income and, and be able to, to qualify with that. The most you can really do on the B side, or I guess the least uh, proof you can get away with, it's really a 12 month program showing 12 months, you know, being in business for a year and having those 12 month statements. There are some lenders who do six months, but they still may want you to be in business for a year. It really comes down to the lender's underwriting. So I, I'd say, you know, the most or the least you can get away with is probably a year in business and being able to utilize a 12 month program to qualify. If you, yeah. If you quit your job yesterday, you're probably looking at a private solution. Gotcha. Gotcha. How about if this might tie into multifamily now? Cause usually when people start quitting their job or when they start exploring other financing solutions, they are at the multifamily stage. So for me, I've already capped my a lender mortgage capacity. So I, I have no interest in going and with, with like Scotiabank or, or RBC for more single families or duplexes. I want to get in the multi-space. So does my income personally matter anymore? Or is it now based on the assets income? Because we always hear like you can quit your job and buy multis. Is that how true is that? Yeah, this is my jam. I love this. So whenever I, whenever I deal with people who quit their job or who don't show anything on paper, you know, we have this conversation about buying multifamily. So the multifamily space is... Essentially, you qualify for your loan based off the net operating income of the property. You know, we have very specific numbers that we need to use to be able to factor in which lender is available for your multifamily property. But 98% of the qualification is based off of the actual property itself and how it's, it's performing. Obviously, if you have zero money in the bank and you, you're having issues with credit, like, you know, a lender is going to probably second guess and be like, what's going on? Like, should this person be bu- buying? 10 units at a time but for the most part the entire qualification is based off of the property itself yeah and i mean and like josh said they there are some secondary factors that they do look at they do ask for a personal network statement you know they're not gonna allow someone who makes you know twenty thousand dollars part-time and has no network to go out and buy you know a cash flowing building because if COVID hits and all of a sudden a bunch of your tenants, you know, uh, go on rent relief or, or lose their job and they can't pay, you have to be able to, to float the rent somehow, right? Or have some sort of asset that you can leverage to be able to make that up. So they, there are some secondary things that you look at, but yeah, the personal debt servicing, you know, does go out the window. And now we're looking at debt service coverage ratio and basically 
does your asset produce a dollar twenty or a dollar twenty-five for every dollar it costs to, to operate the business or, or the building? And it's it, it really comes down to those numbers. Gotcha. So, and who who are who's financing these multifamily buildings? It's a good question. Something that we've really come to kind of notice is there's, there's a weird there's there is a weird zone in the commercial space. So there's your, you know, starting at the top, there's your CMHC loan, right? That's going to give you your absolute best interest rate. You know, you're looking somewhere between like 1.1 like to 2.5. It's free um, money. It's, it's pretty cheap, man. I mean, yeah. to get a commercial loan, if you got an outrageous building and it's cash flowing $2, you know, you take that to CMHC, you're, you're getting something in like super low 1%, right? At a 40-year amortization. So you're like, your, your cash flow is going to be huge because your mortgage payment is going to be so minimal. After you get outside that CMHC, there's your, your, your high-end lenders. There's your first nationals who are going to be, you know, your second, essentially your second best rates. Your big six banks as well, too. You know, they're going to give you top dollar on super aggressive rental properties on, in the multi side as well, too. The, the tricky part is once you start to get into a debt servicing that's, you know, really you're at 1.19, you know, you're like 0.01% away from being at that, that 1.2 preferred area down to properties that are debt servicing 1%. That's where, that's where the zone kind of gets weird. And there's a few tools you know, that we take a look at to help utilize because it's all based on cash flow. The lender's perspective is, is two things. One, we can decrease the loan amount because a, a lower loan amount gives you a less, uh, less mortgage payment and they switch to a interest only type payment. So because you're paying the interest only, you no longer have your, in, uh, your, uh, principal and your your interest payment now it's just the interest so that actually helps to increase your cash flow quite significantly and we've taken a look at comparisons of you know what a three and a half percent you know uh, amortized rate looks like versus a five percent interest only and, and you do start to save money when you get into that five percent you know interest only type range and and that's how the lenders start to utilize. You're most likely looking at a 65%, 70% loan of value when you're, when you're getting into those. And these, are, and these are really specific to like a repositioning type product. So basically you, you find a, a product on, a, on the market, you know, it's probably fully tenanted, probably been that way for the last 20, 30 years. People have been there for so long that you got guys paying 600 bucks, you know, they're, they're way under market level. Those are the type of buildings where you need that repositioning loan to come in for to help you kind of mitigate the underperformance of the building. Yeah, that, that, that B loan is like, they have a lot of flexibility in regards to either bumping the amortization out or lowering the, uh, the interest only payments to make it work. But that 1.1 is roughly where it needs to be. And between 1.1 and 1.2 is, is where they're at. And credit unions are around 1.15 to like 1.25. And then after 1%, you're looking at private money. Private money at that point is the most expensive uh, way to do it, but it also allows for the biggest lift. So if you have the ability to reposition something that is you know, cash flowing so low, but if you get a ton of vacancies, for example, that's, that's huge cash flow up front if you can just turn over really quick and, and do what you have to do. So yeah, I, and there's I, a lot of, sorry, man, I didn't mean to jump you off there. Let you go. Oh yeah. No. So, so I've heard one thing about commercial is that you can buy it with a 20% LTV, uh, sorry, 20% down payment, and you can refinance up to the 10% CMHC approved product. Is that true? Or is that just completely wrong? <laughs> yeah. You can get yes and no, I suppose. 20% is a little aggressive. If you're purchasing like a five, 
to six units. And I've even heard eight units. People like RBC has allowed them to get 20% on eight units. Probably not very often, but you're really looking more 25% down minimum on, on commercial. And then 85% loan to value is where CMHC will be on the commercial side. On the refi at the end, yeah. yeah. So something we've been bringing up in quite a few of our videos is just, you know, everybody wants that coveted CMHC refinance in the back end, but we are dropping a video, I think next week or the week after, it's going to break down CMHC financing and how uh, it has a few limitations when it comes to multifamily equity takeouts when you're using that strategy. It's good for repositioning, but it, it does limit you as an investor on the back end if you are looking to maybe pay, like you can't pay out uh, a JV partner anymore. Like that's that's not allowed. So if you have a partner on the deal, like you guys are married together if you guys are going to go in on CMHC. So there's a few different things involved in it, but it is a phenomenal product if you are looking long-term to hold a multifamily asset. Yeah, because the 40-year amortization would pretty significantly <laughs> change some of our cash flow numbers, right? Oh, uh, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how, how different is it if we're talking about, so I know like there's a multi-unit residential commercial and then there's mixed unit commercial, yeah. right? So this might be getting a little bit more into the nitty gritty of things, but just on a high level, like what's the difference in lending when we're looking at residential versus mixed unit? We're not even going to bother with office space. I don't think anyone in our audience is doing office space. <laughs> this is a great time because we do have a wholesale deal out there, guys. Mixed use. So how are they going to finance that? Daily plug, buy it. Buy it, buy it. Absolutely. <laughs> this is where those like late night infomercial comes in. It's like, boop, boop, boop. like deal the one. Like, <laughs> commercial. Right now, it's taken a bit of a, it's under the microscope a lot more. You know, a few things the lender is going to look at, you know, have they received any of that commercial relief benefit from the government? Have they made all their payments lately? Like, are they, are they open? Are they doing curbside pickup only? Are they open at all? They, they are going to ask quite a few more questions if there is a commercial component. Your vacancy might change a little bit. You know, on the residential side, a typical vacancy is probably anywhere between three to 5%, depending on the city and, and how the market is at the time. The commercial side, you're probably looking five to eight percent again, just depending on where the where the building is and what that vacancy rate is for for that city. But other than that, you know, it doesn't really change all that much more. There, there is, like I said, the slight risk just in terms of that it is it a business, so you know, businesses are a little bit more affected. Anchor anchor tenants yeah. are also a thing, so it depends on your tenant profile as well. So if, for example. You know, you had a strip mall that had just had a bunch of pizza places and a shawarma place and like uh, a an old blockbuster, an old movie place. Like that's, you know, a lender's going to weigh that compared to something that has like a Rexall Pharma Plus and like a McDonald's in it, right? So right. there's a, what we've come to realize very quickly is that it's a very liquid situation. So there's, there's no definitive answer as to like, this is exactly what you need to get this deal funded. It's very, this is our profile based off of this piece and this piece and this piece. We can probably paint a whole picture to make it work. So like, it, which is one of the reasons why Aaron and I like it so much is because it's not a very, it's a very fluid thing where we can weigh one piece of the deal and maybe mitigate some risk on the other side of the deal to make a deal work. And which is why our relationship with our credit unions have, kind of be one of the keys to our success. Yeah, credit unions are definitely one of my favorite lenders right now on the multi-unit in the commercial space. They are really good at doing portfolio type lending. So when you start to, to buy with the credit unions, they start to look at your portfolio now, not just like each individual building. So every time you buy a building and it goes into your portfolio with the credit union, they start to look at does the whole portfolio mm -hmm. 
now debt service at 1.2 or 1.25, which is really cool because in situations where you have a, a, a super high, you know, maybe you have two buildings in a portfolio and they're both debt servicing really, really well. And they're super strong and you want to buy, you know, your third building, but your third building has some, some, uh, some tenants that are obviously vacant, cash flow is a little bit low. Now you can start to utilize the cash flow from your whole por- your, your portfolio and even out the properties to get to the 1.2 debt servicing. So now, you know, instead of being at a building where maybe it's at 1% or sub 1% and, and looking at private financing, if you have enough extra cash flow in your portfolio, now you can get into a, a credit union and keep your rate at, you know, three and a half, three point seven percent and and keep that principal and interest type payment as well too, which is a huge benefit, especially for these guys who are looking to burr their building, you know, any extra equity that you can get through just principal pay down is going to be more cash in on the backside. So, and the other thing that they can take a look at too is, so there's, there's two types of charges out there. There's your standard mortgage charge, and then there's your collateral mortgage, mortgage charge. People who bank with Scotia and BMO and, and RBC, double check your, your mortgages. They probably have some sort of collateral global limit on there, but the credit unions will do this too. And what that actually allows them to do is if they register 125% LTV on a building, and let's say they did that for two buildings that you have in your portfolio. Again, you want to go purchase your third and maybe you're a little short on the down payment. Well, now you can utilize the extra collateral that you've built up in your portfolio and use that to help compensate for your, your uh, lack of down payment on your next purchase. So there's a lot of cool things that they can do with the credit union and, and building that portfolio and, and leveraging it to help investors expand and grow. So, so would you say the order of operations kind of when you're starting off, stick with your A lender, but as you get more experience, start building your portfolio, that's the time to start exploring credit unions. So credit unions and A lenders fit this a very similar space on the commercial side. They both have that minimum 1.2 DSCR. You know, big six banks are big six banks. If they want to make exceptions, they can make exceptions for the people they want to make exceptions uh, for. Mm-hmm. But you're typically looking at a 1.2 uh, starting on both, like like I said, the big six and the credit unions. So it, they're both good places to start at, kind of yeah. at the same time. Yeah, I, I feel as though you're almost choosing, you know how people talk about their power team? People mm-hmm. talk about, I want to surround mm-hmm. myself with people who are going to help me succeed. I feel like if you chose a credit union, you were an investor and you chose a credit union in your area, like a, like a Libro or a, you know, a, a Meridian, for example, and you started that relationship, that's, that's a notch in your power team that knows most people don't think about. Like those people are, they want to see you succeed. So if they can find a solution for you, they are private banks. They're quite literally privately owned banks by the people mm-hmm. who, who are, who have an account there. So, you know, they have vested interest in you succeeding as well. So that might be a little bit more of a, a benefit to people than possibly that, you know, they thought of previously because, you know, they are able to do some pretty cool stuff, especially if you're one of their members. Yeah. I think that's interesting. We had a, a similar discussion recently. Someone posted asking about uh, credit unions that, that people recommend. Whalen. Yeah. yeah and, and people just put out a bunch of names and I was like, why would you use a credit union? Why not just use a bank? So I was like, oh, like a big part of it is relationship yeah, as, exactly. as, as you get into more creative like options and businesses and stuff like that. So with residential, um, like single family duplex, so on and so forth, the location matters a lot. If you're investing in like, I don't know, Timbuktu, like in the middle of nowhere, the banks are going to be like, yeah, I don't know if I want to finance that. How is that in the multi-family space, right? What, like eight units, 10 units, where it's probably going to be higher than 1.2 ratio, but it's in the middle of nowhere. Are they still requiring a huge down payment then? Like how much does the location matter? 
So I, I would say location always matters, but you're going to limit your availability lenders. So uh. their lenders have ge per certain geo ge geographical places that they can lend, right? It's either yes or no. So if you say you decided you want to buy a place in Wawa, way up north somewhere, we probably have access to like maybe two or three credit unions in, in that specific area who would be able to help you. So if, for example, you know, one of them said no, and then when the other one said no, you'd, you'd have one more option in it. Mm. And if it doesn't work out, then you're probably looking at some sort of, you know, private financing solution to be able to get it done. So when you are looking at properties and maybe you find a sick property, but it's in the middle of nowhere, don't go firm on it until you realize how many lenders can actually lend in that area or else you could be putting yourself in a really tough situation. Yeah. And that is an, one area where a big six bank kind of does have an advantage is as a national lender, they have a little bit more reach. So you know, those really urban cities, you know, if you're having trouble getting it financed, it, it might be a lot easier to get it done with, with a bank. There's probably some sort of major, uh, major lending uh, branch in that city or close enough by. So if you're, if you're getting stuck on credit unions and, and, you know, they're distance from a branch and they have a couple weird little parameters like that, where you have to be, you know, either you have to live like a hundred kilometers or the property has to be or something like that, where, the big six banks, they're a little bit more flexible that way. So there, there are a couple more advantages going with the big six banks, you know, it's, but they are very picky and choosy, you know, they, they choose the people they want to help and, and go over the top for. And then there's people where they, you know, you get a phone call and the mortgage agent is going to call you back and then no one hears from them. Right. So it's, that's the problem. I think the people, I think the investors, the big problem with the big six banks is it's just not the same level of respect and relationship that you get with, you know, working with a, like a broker, like we love working with the investors and we're, you know, we're on the phone with them all the time. And we always answer our phones for all of them up to the late hours of the night where you don't get that with some of the bank guys. And that's what they like. Right. And where some, some mortgages may come at, at a, you know, may, we charge a fee on the B side. Yeah. But we, you know, we're there to do it for you. We take it over. We make sure that you go to sleep at night and, and you're not worrying about it. And, you know, we answer your phone all the time, right? Where you don't always get that with some of the big six banks. Not that there aren't great mortgage agents at the big six banks, but that's just some of the feedback that we've kind of heard and, and where people kind of have their issues with it, right? So. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to echo that. I, I just recently bought out in New Brunswick and I, I'd say it was, I made a very conscious decision not to go with the big six bank and just to build an actual relationship with the local credit unions out there. Not because, you know, it wouldn't qualify for big six, but the way I looked at it was I'd rather be someone in someone's pond rather than just a nobody in like a huge ocean of like customers. Right. Which I think is something that a lot of people overlook. So I'm going to get back to my question. Cause I, I think I, I just want to ask this question. We talked a lot about, you know, multifamily commercial properties, uh, mixed use commercial properties, and these kind of the bigger plays that people make, but a good chunk of our audience are small, newer investors. Right. So, and, and the most common thing we hear is, you know, just don't have the money, right? Like we're talking about the, potentially the low entry mar markets are now increasing in the amount of capital you need. Cause if you're buying a 200 K property now, it usually requires a substantial amount of work. So I'm just curious, like for people that are in that situation, what kind of products do you guys have that, you know, allows them to jump into real estate is the solution, private money. Is there another solution that you'd recommend and, and so on? Sure. So, I mean, obviously buried into the market has been a big issue for a lot of the, uh, the new home buyers coming into the market specifically just because most people are getting priced out unless you have the bank of mom and dad it's decently tough right now to be able to put uh, a down payment together and we do have some options available uh, obviously there are creative financing solutions like vtbs jv partnerships and stuff like that that most of your people already know about we do have a twenty thousand down flip product so 
we did find that the majority of our of the investors who were looking for an active investment who wanted to put the sweat equity in and make some money and make it happen, flipping was the most capital intensive uh, way to be able to do that. You had to have your 20% down payment. You had to have the money put aside. You have to have your renovations costs. You got to sell it. It's a whole bunch of things that have to happen. So we, we tried to partner with a mortgage investment corporation that allows our investors to just put $20,000 down and you just have to have the cost to be able to carry the loan and to do the renovations. If you can prove to us, you can do the renovations and your ARV comes in 20,000 boxes, well, 23,000, you got to pay for the uh, lawyers, but in general, you can make that happen, guys. There are ways to make active real estate investments happen in this market. It's just a matter of finding those solutions. And, and we, uh, we pride, our, pride ourselves on doing that. We're actually on the DL, I guess we can tell you guys, but uh, don't tell anybody else. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> <I'm right there. laughs> no, I'm joking. You can tell everybody. Uh, we're we're going to be working on zero down flips. So for, for some of our clients who are who have that history on being able to complete these projects decently quickly, we're going to start offering zero down flip products for people who qualify. So we're here to support uh, our investors as well. So That's how it. soon are you bringing that to market? Uh, yeah. let's, talk, let's, let's talk about that. <laughs> we're, we're working on it. We're planning it out right now. So hopefully by the end of Q1, we're going to have that set up and running for all of our all, obviously pre-existing clients. But um, you know, if, we, if you have a background, we can figure that out. So okay, that's, no. that's a great option, not just for anyone that doesn't have the down payment and the renovation funds, but you guys are, are going to be potentially financing a whole lot of wholetails, in my opinion. Oh, um, yeah. Wholesalers <laughs> that just want to take it yeah. to the market and sell it. People that just want to buy off wholesalers and take it to the market. That is a, that's a game changer, actually. So <laughs> I'm sure that's a great product. A lot of people can reach out to both of you guys to learn about that. I think you guys have dropped a whole lot of nuggets in this episode from a financing perspective. And that's really just what we look out for. Uh, Josh is doing this all paid thing there. <laughs> so, so generally at this time in the podcast, we like to ask our guests uh, three real que- uh, three questions about themselves at the end of the episode. So where are we going to be seeing both of you guys five years from now? Personal investing, Finlay mortgage team, everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Josh and I do have goals to get into the real estate game and we want to pick up, you know, our goal this year is to pick up 12 units and and that's something that we're trying to hold ourselves to, you know, with our focus on the company, you know, we want to grow the Finley Mortgage team to a point where in, in five years, you know, we're in more of a management standpoint where, you know, we have, like, we get to work on our commercial stuff and, and, you know, we have our personal relationships that we're working with, but we want to have a team of, of mortgage agents under us that we can start to delegate things to and, and be able to, you know, effectively handle more investors and, and, and grow the Finley mortgage team. You know, we, I think the big thing that we notice is just the mortgage industry is an old, like an old guy's game. It's, it's an old man's game. There's a lot of really top end brokers that are out there who are starting to get a little bit older and aren't quite in, you know, in the investment space and kind of just stick to that volume bonus kind of thing on, on the first time home buyer side, we really want to take over the entire market. You know, we would love to be doing, you know, 60, 70, 80% of, of the mortgages in, in Ontario at some point. And, and that just comes with growing our, growing our team and growing our brokerage. You know, we're at nine members now on the Philly mortgage team. So we're slowly starting to grow. We're putting in the, the backend systems to make sure that our, our customer services, you know, as best as it can be with uh, all of our admin and intake versus having client care specialists who take it from the approval stage and, and handle all of our underwriting at the banks and making that you know, just as smooth as possible. Uh, but we, we really want to be one of the top producing mortgage teams in Ontario. And I think in 
you know, I think in the next three to five years, we're definitely up there keeping at the same pace that we're at. So I, I agree. I agree. I think, I think there's, you know, when, when people think of household names, they think of Remax because, you know, they, they think of Royal LePage and there isn't that for investment mortgages in Ontario. It doesn't exist. And I think that's, true. yeah, that is very true. Yeah, that, it, does that, it, it does now guys. So that's what we're aiming for. We're aiming to be the, uh, the place to go if you need to get your investment mortgages done. And we're going to uh, build a company that's going to surround that. So in five years from now, I'm, I'm hoping just market domination in that specific niche market, hopefully on a big boat somewhere down South. So I don't have to deal with the winter, uh, you know, just aggressive goals guys that next five years are going to be all about growth. I think private lending too, like opening up a larger, a larger amount of capital, being able to privately lend. I mean, you, a lot of the private lenders that we work with started as investors and they grew a massive portfolio. And there's a lot of people who get to a certain point where they just don't want to have to manage that anymore. And, and they make that switch from being a property manager and a landlord to a, a private investor. You know, they liquidate yep. their portfolio. Maybe they keep a couple buildings for some passive residual income on the side, but you know, when you have $10 million in, in real estate that you can liquidate and now put that out on the market at 8% plus your fee, you know, that's a pretty good income coming in year after year. And, and, you know, mortgages are pretty secure. Obviously there's people like not every mortgage is bulletproof, but when you get to kind of pick and choose and you get to look at the history and the income and making sure you have a strong equity position, that, that's a much more secure investment with your money than, you know, putting it into some stocks in the stock market where you have absolutely no control over who's on the other end, right? We would love to grow our capital side and, and the private investment side too in the next three to five years. So love that, man. That's that's very ambitious goals. And I can see you guys get there. Your products are very creative, right? You're actually listening to what investors want yeah. and then bringing new and refreshing products to the market in an industry that doesn't change much. It's relatively flat. So uh, kudos to you guys for those big goals and you guys are definitely taking the right steps. Second question here is, if you guys won $10 million and you had seven days, only seven days to spend it, you can't put it all in real estate. Okay. <laughs> what would you do with it? Oh, can't put it all in real estate. Put a little bit in no. real estate. You can put some in real estate. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I private lens like half of it. <laughs> I, I put, t- I put out 10%, make $500,000 a year for the rest of my life. And then the rest of 5 million bucks, I would buy McLaren 720S. <laughs> and I would build a house on a lake in Muskoka. And probably build another house down south somewhere. Love it. Yeah, I, I agree, man. I, I'd like to put some in the market. I mean, you got to have something. You got to make some sort of smart use with that kind of play, right? I, I love to have, you know, a nice car. Uh, I like the, the Bentleys. Bentleys are pretty nice and, and, and luxurious. But I'd love to have. I think I'd open a little fishing lodge or something up north on the lake. Have a, a, a little lodge. You can come in, have some biplanes fly on in and land and and uh, have a little fishing lodge, something like that. You um, have a little lodge, but you have airplanes being able to land in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Real, real small lodge. That's big right? baller shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's, so. hey man, look up the cost of a plane. I promise you it's not as much as you think for like, you know, a small little float plane. It's it's cheaper than some cars, so. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe, maybe some, when you're doing, maybe when you're doing millions of dollars in mortgages, it seems <laughs> small. <laughs> hey, I promise you they're not $300,000 planes. I mean, you can get yeah. a $300,000 plane, but. Go look it up. I promise you guys. <laughs> awesome, <laughs> you know, man, guys. Have, have a little tourist destination somewhere you can go out and just, you know, be on the water. Why not? Yeah, yeah. So if you guys could have dinner or, or lunch with anyone either dead or alive, who would you guys choose and why? We were talking about this uh, right before. I think 
little backstory. I've been reading Relentless again by Tim Grover for the second or third time. And as someone who grew up with sports, I kind of just relate to it a little bit better. I think, you know, Kobe would be great to have a conversation with and, and not so much from like a basketball perspective, but just, you know, understanding what it's like to be someone who is able to perform at such a level. You know, it's, it's different when you're at that level and same with Michael Jordan, right? I mean, two guys who are really in a league of their own, your relationships are different. You have to learn how to, you know, manage the relationships that you do have, or, or even decide if you want to be out, like want to manage those relationships, right? That's a decision you got to make, you know, how they deal with it, how their mind, sh- their, their mind shift, you know, what, what they thought about how they're able to compartmentalize certain things and, and dealing with certain things. And, um, you know, it's, it's two guys that were on a level that not very many other people were on. So just being able to have that conversation with them and how they were able to do that. I think that would, would change anybody's life really. Yeah. I would say, uh, I'm going to say my grandfather, people don't know him, but he passed a little too soon when I was decently young, but he did a lot, uh, made a lot of sacrifices and I'd love to be able to sit with him and tell him about what we're doing and and what's going on and ask for his advice. So if we could do it over again, I could meet somebody who'd definitely be him. I'll second that. (laughs) Awesome guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. Drop in all of those golden nuggets, giving us some insight into the commercial world, uh, mixed residential, basically the entire spectrum of lending and even and even diving into your backstory if people want to reach out to you get in contact with you how could they do so hit us up on our social media um the finley mortgage team or uh our information i guess will be down below if you guys are watching this um on youtube or listening to it in the stream you can call us text us like we answer my phone all day long so if you guys have our phone number which a lot of people do just give us a call shoot it we we answer our stuff all day like our social medias come to us we don't have a we have a team who handles it but we also have access so we we see the message personally we answer some of them personally email us call us reach out dms it's 24 7 365 guys just reach out we'll figure it Ooh, out oh you guys are you guys are asking for a lot of messages yeah. now. <laughs> we said 90 percent of ontario in the next three to five years we got to start bringing <laughs> shit you got it yeah you got to get more people to reply that's like <laughs> that's a lot of people man <laughs> but but super like I, your goals are super ambitious i'm sure you guys are going to reach it and uh, we're going to have to need you back on before you guys hit that goal because i'm sure you're going to be unreachable by then <laughs> chilling chilling in your little uh, private island so uh thank you again so much for joining us and if you guys want to reach out all of the details will be down in the in the show descriptions invest smarter everyone and live better